0: it's a foregone conclusion from the point of view of the people who are literally invested in understanding, manipulating, and shaping human behavior that the conditions for doing so are ecological. And it's only when they're trying to decide who to blame for things that this language of responsibility and smart and moral and responsible individual choices becomes central organizing features of the conversation.
1: Welcome to the death panel. If you'd like to support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. Our patron episode this week was an interview that I did with Denya Cotto about the pandemic and Palestine. It's a fantastic conversation about health and liberation that revisits an essay of hers from 2020 that I highly recommend that you check out. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at Panel underscore. So on today's show, Phil and I are joined by our guest, Olufemi O. Taiwo. Olufemi is an associate professor of philosophy at Georgetown University, and his first two books were published this year. The first is called Reconsidering Reparations, which came out in January, and the second, which he's here to talk about today, is called Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics, and Everything Else, which was published by Haymarket in May. Femi, welcome to the death panel. It's so great to have you on. Thanks for having me. I've really actually been looking forward to getting a chance to talk to you about this book for a while now, mostly because I grabbed it to take with me as hospital reading in late May. And honestly, out of every book that I've ever picked to take to the emergency room on one of those trips where you're like, shit, well... I know I'm going into this whole thing and it's going to be here. Like I'm expecting to be here a while. Um, this, uh, you know, has really been a fixture of my entire adult life since I was 19. And I'm saying this completely honestly and not trying to be superlative here, but of all the <laughs> books that I've grabbed over the years for trips like this, Elite Capture was the most on brand. Um It was the argument I really needed to be sort of thinking about while I was sitting, feeling like absolute shit and killing time in between trying to self-advocate basically in an ER during COVID in a new hospital that had very unfamiliar social, procedural, and systematic norms that were very different from the hospital that I was used to, which has its own sort of unique and vulgar glaring class and identity dynamics on display. But, you know, there have been many moments that I've had since reading your book when I'm I'm thinking through, for example, like recent shifts in COVID policy for the show um, and parts of your argument come back to mind, particularly, mm. for example, your engagements with common sense, common ground and common belief, um, which I hope we can get into later in the discussion. So anyways, that is all to say, um, Femi, I'm really glad to have you here today and thank you for writing this book. And can you start us off by talking about the project of the book and give us a bird's eye view of the argument that you're trying to make in elite capture. And if it's not too tall of a task, could you also touch on your background, research interests, and sort of how that brought you to the argument of elite capture as well?
0: Thanks a lot. Wow. I've never never gotten an endorsement quite like that one. That's... <laughs> <laughs> so in general, I do social political philosophy. Um, I think about how our social systems are put together um, and the... Way that I do that, the particular themes and figures that I draw interest from and that I uh, pay most attention to come from anti-colonial, anti-capitalist and black radical traditions of thought. So that's me in general, um, partly because of intellectual reasons just having to do with philosophical questions like what do we know and how do we deal with building knowledge together and exchanging knowledge together. Um, So very kind of abstract intellectual questions and really concrete organizing questions um, that I stumbled onto while doing, you know, organizing stuff. The question of who we believe and how we build knowledge together is not quite as theoretical when you're in organizing space as it might be in a seminar room, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Those, the overlap between those questions brought me to the project that elite capture represents so the basic bird's eye view the basic thing that elite capture is trying to do is give a perspective on this kind of cultural question set of questions set of debates and conversations around identity politics so, there's people that believe that identity politics is kind of in and of itself a bad thing. There's people that believe that identity politics is in and of itself a good thing. And there's people that believe that, you know, there are useful, productive, and helpful kind of tendencies within identity politics. And there are bad things about the particular ways that it's developed. Um, and I wanted to give reasons for taking door number three there. Right? <laughs> there's there's good stuff in there. There's not so good stuff in there. And we should try to sift out the good from the bad.
2: Yeah. And I, I think the thing that was really refreshing to me about reading your book is that it didn't spare in in actually wrestling with, I think, a pretty – high level set of philosophical questions, but it also felt very it sort of reflected a lot of things that I had experienced rather concretely in politics and in, in organizing, but also just sort of in the like public sphere um, of politics. And I, I think that the thing that interested me about the book is that for sort of like the left at a really generic level, any sort of theory about power has to reckon with like the role of elites, not just like capitalists who, own the means of production, but, you know, in, in like post-Marxist theory, like thinking about the state and the role of um, state officials in, in sort of disorganizing um, the working class and, and sort of smoothing relations um, among a dominant class. But your sort of theory here builds uh, out a, a kind of discussion of, of elite capture that, that is sort of may, maybe different from those, but also share some things uh, in common uh, with things I had been familiar with before, so can you talk about what does your what are you trying to pick up here that we might not have been able to see uh, before? So
0: I think that in general, you know, the use of this term "elite" as opposed to you know a more kind of specific information like state officials, like you just said, or the capitalists or something, just reflects the fact that you know. It, if you are telling these histories, if you're looking at lots of parts of the world, you know, I think it's just, I think it's just apparent that there are there are more players in the political game than just the people on the means of production. In African history, for instance, in African studies, there's lots of talk in scholarship about the role of, say, church officials, the role of colonial officials, the role of so-called traditional leaders or chiefs. And, you know, there's an obvious role that capital plays in deciding which of these groups are empowered and how it is that they interact. But you kind of have to pay attention to what all of them are up to, to really understand what's going on politically. So I think, you know, once you're trying to ask these philosophical and political questions from a global perspective, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty clear that you need a pretty diverse cast of characters to understand how the world is working. Even if capital ultimately explains who wins in those fights, um, which is more or less what I think. Right. Um, so that's the reason for thinking about elites as opposed to some other more narrow group. Um, and basically what I'm trying to say with this term elite capture is that a lot of the stuff that some people try to explain in terms of the kind of theoretical or ideological deficiencies of identity politics. you know, here's why people are using identity politics in a bad way, and it shows us, you know why the ideas of identity politics are deficient. Um, I think a lot of those things are really just, explained by what identity politics has in common with the rest of the world, right? It's not some special deficiency of this way of thinking that makes it exploitable by the people who are elites, by the people who have advantages in terms of resources and information and social position and institutions. Actually, just everything is more exploitable by those people and morphable by those people and changeable by those people. Um, And so we don't need a special analysis of what identity politics gets wrong at the level of ideas to explain why people might use identity politics or any other kind of politics in unhelpful ways.
1: Well, I was wondering, actually, if you would mind quickly touching on what you mean by identity politics, because I think, as you're saying, there is this tendency to sort of take a critique of elite capture, which I guess I think a lot of people almost think about it wrong and that when they think about elite capture, it's like a question of like, does it exist in the instance or does it not exist in the instance? And I feel like more what you're saying is that it's, it's functionally always there um, as a kind of baseline and that it's more a question of sort of what degree of elite capture is occurring in whatever context and not so much a question of is it there or not, and that people often sort of confuse what is really a critique of elite capture as a mode of using ideas in order to, you know, sort of perpetuate or enforce the status quo through either social norms or laws or whatever. You know, there are so many different ways that is it's more actually that they're they're critiquing elite capture itself and they they are saying that it's identity politics. So can you sort of explain your I guess third third way of identity politics not to like be using it that way in the kind of like third way liberal establishment but this kind of move towards like a more um forced nuanced perspective of like what we mean when we say identity politics sort of your take on it where that comes from and also the ways that i guess identity politics is often mischaracterized relative to how you conceptualize it
0: yeah so the term identity politics comes from the Combe river collective which was a queer black feminist socialist collective um, that formed in boston in the 70s and as far as i can tell what i mean by identity politics is pretty much what i take them to have met which is just how we're going to do politics is we're going to start by looking at our political situation, where we fit into society, um, and we're going to let that be a starting point for figuring out our agendas and priorities, politically speaking. Um, so we respond to the situation that we're in. That doesn't mean that we can't, starting from that point, move to working in coalition with people in different situations. Um, it doesn't mean that we can't move to a larger, um, analysis of the whole world and not just our place in it, but it's just a starting point. Right? so a lot of work that might start from analysis of gender or race or ability or the combination of these things could nevertheless end up at somewhere more universalist, right? Um, and that's pretty much what I mean when I talk about identity politics. And I think what it's come to mean, um, especially in the hands of the people who position themselves against identity politics, is Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, it's come to refer to the people who are wielding identity not as a starting point but as a stopping point. So to say, right? um, Not only am I going to start by thinking about how the the way that the world is put together is unjust towards me and people like me. Um, but that's the total list of people that I'm fighting for. That's the total list of people that I'm fighting with. Um, and those concerns should override everyone else's concerns or we can't work together. Um, so I, I don't understand identity politics that way.
1: Right. So
2: I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you talk about sort of the elite capture of identity politics is having a lot in common with the elite capture of uh, everything. And as I was reading it, I was like, you know, a lot of the examples that you bring up seem resonant to me in all kinds of domains, uh, including domains that have nothing to do with uh, identity as such. But I'm curious what you see as driving that um, or what makes forms of politics like identity politics, for example, but others, of course, as well, what makes them vulnerable to uh, elite capture or another way of saying it is like what what's driving uh, this sort of phenomenon and I don't sort of mean that uh, as like a an academic question because it's it you know it, it seems like considering it is is kind of important to actually confronting it more directly so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that
0: yeah so this is a core point that I was Trying to make or at least, you know, point at with the book. And it goes back to um, the way Beatrice put it just a second ago um, pretty helpfully, you know, that elite capture isn't some thing that happens at the level of some individual act, right? I'm not thinking about elite capture as just when somebody powerful decides to lie about an identity politics issue. Right. Right. (laughs) That's, that happens, obviously. Um, I'm not not saying that it doesn't happen, um, but that's not the phenomenon I'm trying to characterize. It's more like a spectrum of a certain kind of political situation. And I think maybe the most helpful way to put it is to think of elite capture the way that you think of inequality. Right? So, There's inequality in lots of social systems, um, arguably all of them, right? But inequality can go up or down, right? Does the top 1% have 10% of all of the wealth that exists, or do they have 50% of all the wealth that exists? Both of those situations are unequal, but the second one is more unequal than the first one, right? Elite capture is exactly that kind of thing. Um, Elite capture is just Describing what you could call a sort of practical inequality rather than just um, a resource inequality. And obviously, those are related. If you have a lot of money, it becomes easier to do a lot of things. That's hard for people who don't have money to do. But what we should notice is that some of the things that people can do with money or resources or ownership of a media organization or with political influence over scientific granting bodies is they can decide what perspectives circulate and how much perspectives and how much of those perspectives circulate, right? So there's a variety of ways of thinking about identity politics, just to bring it back to what we're talking about in particular, right? And if you are hiring at a university, or if you are, giving someone a news anchor position or if you are investing in grants for someone to develop that way of thinking are you going to do that more or less if the way that the person is talking about identity politics is fundamentally against you and your interests i think you're probably going to do it less right so over time The people that talk about identity politics, the ways of talking about identity politics that are friendlier to the powers that be, let's say Mm -hmm. the corporate diversity, equity and inclusion way of talking about identity politics is going to get a lot more of the corporate bucks than, say, the Combe River Collective way of talking about identity politics. That is a feature not of, you know, What the Combe River Collective Statement did or didn't say, that that is a feature of how resources move in our society and who does the moving of them, which is just to say that that is caused by the kinds of practical inequality that exist because of who the elites are and how much control they have over who gets resources of various kinds.
1: Right. There's this part also, I think that uh, in in your book where you talk about it in terms of like uh, what resistance certain ideas are going to sort of experience into the world. I think a lot of people think of elite capture as a kind of one directional process of like just appropriation and extraction. And that's definitely part of it. But I think one of the things that I really appreciated about this is you really try and push that further. And one of the sort of ideas that you bring in to push that critique further and really look at elite capture not as an individual moment but as a system quality, you know, as a as a as a guiding behavioral principle of how we manage and allocate all sorts of things as we're saying, um is this kind of idea of it being um you know way more than just cynical appropriation, I think is what you say and that it's about These moments where also certain material things are are literalized, I think one of the the things that I think about so often with regard to your book and this idea of um, who is in the room or as we joke on the show all the time, like who's at the table um, and this idea of deference politics, which is in a way, I think, a critique of how these moments of elite capture are made visible in the sort of realm of like identity politics or diversity and inclusion. I think a really good example that that immediately comes to mind is, you know, in December, Rochelle Walensky, uh, director of the CDC, you know, made this statement that said, "Oh, it's great. The only people that are that are dying from COVID who are vaccinated have pre-existing conditions, and it's fine." And so there was this outrage, and the disabled community was given a seat at the table for this You know, publicized and public discourse and conversation that the CDC and Rochelle Walensky were going to have with these disabled activists. And there was this kind of um, moment where I think a lot of people saw that as okay, like here we go. We're at the table. Everything's going to be good. The CDC is going to listen to us now. And no matter how many times things like this happen, and you're proven wrong that, you know, the seat at the table doesn't really matter and that those people that were in that meeting with Rochelle Walensky were not there to convey their embodied expertise to the CDC. They were there in order to allow the CDC to sort of put forward this, this framework of like apology, listening, centering marginalized voices and then moving on and and keeping forward. But the, the sort of plan to maintain the status quo that put those very... Voices that they claim to be centering at risk, and and I so I appreciate um, you know this critique of deference politics that you try and push, which is I think where the productive critique of identity politics actually lies. Um, can you talk about that idea a little bit and explain it?
0: Yeah. So the basic thing, um, I really like that example. I think it's a really kind of clear example of one way that this goes. Maybe the more popular way that this goes, where the basic idea of deference is we find somebody to listen to, um, maybe even draw our political stances from, who is from the right kind of background, usually a marginalized community, and we think of that action in and of itself as being the way to respond to a world that doesn't care enough or care appropriately about what marginalized people think and maybe more importantly experience. And so we have situations like like that one where the listening part happens, but the actual changing the world part doesn't happen. But when we start thinking about identity politics and all these related kinds of thoughts. It's changing the world that we're after, right? And somehow along the way, we can lose sight of that. So what I think about deference politics in general is at the level of ideas, it's very easy to say what goes wrong with it, right? Um, The thing we need to change is society, what deference politics is about is changing how conversations go. Um, Those aren't equivalent and in a sufficiently bad society, they might not even be strongly related right um, so theoretically it's easy to say what goes wrong with it, but I think what's more interesting at the level of how we actually see these things play out is the kind of you know social story. There's a lot of people who really you know who really believe or at least profess to believe that Once the right people get into, you know, get a seat at the table, as you put it, or get in the room, as I've put it, with the people who make decisions, then good things will start to happen. Good enough things will start to happen. And despite the fact that that is just demonstrably not true, this way of thinking about the world and talking about the world continues to circulate. And and why is that? And the, the thing that I am critical about in terms of how identity politics is actually practiced is, you know, the fraction of people who can get in the room with CDC officials or, you know, at policy meetings or at corporate equity, diversity and inclusion sessions your stakeholders.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> All your key stakeholders. stakeholders. Your key
0: stakeholder group. <laughs> Core stakeholders. Indeed. You know, those people <laughs> just have, those people have different interests than the whole group. Yeah. Okay. It might be enough, you know, might be enough to get your EDI checks or your citations or whatever else, as far as your individual life goes, um, to get in the room even though there's not the payoff for the people who aren't in the room.
2: Well, can we come to this metaphor of room? Because you use this, I I like that you use this metaphor throughout the book, because, uh, I mean, in addition to being a good metaphor, it is the one that people use, room, table. This is now (laughs) like, people use this uh, a lot in sort of, uh, mm, I don't know, like nonprofit politics that's just like, oh, he's at that table. I mean, and that has some sort of technical definition that I, I'm, I'm not exactly uh, sure about uh, when when people use it. But um, I mean, I guess one, one thing that you're saying is that like the people who are going to be selected, who are disproportionately likely to be selected uh, into being in the room, so to speak, are also going to be the ones who are least likely to challenge uh, elite dominance in that room. I, I guess one other uh, question I have is, doesn't that whole model of, uh, sort of being in the room as equivalent to power in some way, isn't that predicated on the idea that being in the room is itself leverage when in fact, uh, you know, I've been in tons of rooms where, uh, you know, I've had very, very little of what I would call leverage. It was, uh, I was there. It's like, you, you know, this as well as I do, right? Like the, the, it's really easy to like pacify faculty members. You're just like, you know, yeah, we really like listened and took into consideration uh, shit that you said. And then it's, we're going to do whatever we wanted to do in the first place. So like, I'm curious also about the role that sort of like leverage plays in your in model of uh, of elite capture here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I would say is, uh, you know, access to rooms or <laughs> tables or however we want to put it, You know, they are forms of leverage. They are forms of power or privilege or whatever we want to call it. Just they just aren't forms of leverage or power or privilege at the scale of what the group needs. Mm. Right. So so, you know, regardless of what happens to black people writ large, I get to put on my CV that I was in that room on Tuesday and maybe that'll help me get in some other room where I can find some dollars and et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's not to say that there isn't power of any kind from this kind of access. Um, It just isn't the kind of power that's, it just isn't necessarily the kind of power that's actually required to make the changes to the world at the scale that is relevant for the marginalized group that's being spoken for. Um, and so that's the thing that I'm trying to hammer home in those sections of the book.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I appreciate the way that you put it in terms of like, I can be in that room and it's not going to do anything, but I can put it on my CV because I think that's one of the dynamics that you sort of frequently revisit is that I think a lot of people like to sort of ascribe this like grand moral narrative to things that there is this... Um, very black and white structure of saying like, well, okay, the, you know, people who are in that position who are making that decision that they're, you know, some, they're somehow like, you know, making a very clear cut moral decision, but that it's actually, you know, much broader and tied up at a systems level, not at these kind of individual moments because people's, you know, survival, their, their, their shelter, their, um, whatever is tied up into that CV and into being in that room and into being able to sort of accumulate the, the accolades that give you the access to something beyond precarity. And, you know, that's one thing that I, I think, you know, to sort of push this um, disability rights connection that I brought in earlier a little further than the idea of just being at the table, which kind of engages with like how these things work almost at like a, a level of charity mindset where these are like, you know stakeholders that are being let into the room and sort of deferred to in some capacity, but there's this sort of other framework that you're you're gesturing towards here, in terms of this kind of accumulation capacity and this this sort of need for people to be participants in these extractive strategies in order to themselves survive. That um, is is at the sort of system level, and I think it's a much more important point to try and think through and understand. And um, you know, there's a lot of affini- affinity between the argument that you make and also the work of Jesbeer Poir. Uh, she makes this argument in the foreword to her book, Right to Mame, about <laughs> essentially the the issue of whiteness in disability rights and disability studies. She has this great line, she says that the uh the epistemic whiteness is no dirty secret. And she writes, quote, Part of how white centrality is maintained is through the policing of disability itself. What it is, who or what is responsible for it, how one lives it, whether it melds into an overarching condition of precarity of a population or is significant as an exceptional attribute of an otherwise fortunate life, these normative subjects cohere not only in terms of racial, class, and gendered privilege, they also tend towards impairments that are thought to be discernible the largely unmarked Euro-American bias of disability studies has had to confront itself as the production of most of the world's disability happens through colonial violence, developmentalism, war, occupation, and the disparity of resources, end quote. And basically, you know, the argument that she's making here is that disability and disability this is, uh, you know, something that in the United States we've sort of pursued this this message of pride and a kind of rewriting of disability and and reframing of it. But disability and debility are also a material manifestation of the global reach of empire, and so uh, is also therefore partially at odds or contradictory with that declared mission of disability studies, which has been mostly concerned with asserting disability pride. Negating disability as a lack and advocating for this kind of deference political mode that you talk about of, you know, getting people in the room and and getting people into every every branch of the ivory tower to make the same argument against disability as a lack and how that sort of functions as this, you know, as this other mode of maintaining these elite values, the centrality of whiteness, you know, as you're saying, and then and it's sort of tied into this larger systemic issue that is so much more than these individual moments where we typically think of elite capture. Um, And and it reminded me so much, actually, of the part in your book where you talk about E. Franklin Frazier's book. And I wondered if you could talk about his work a little bit.
0: Yeah. um, Maybe on the way to getting there, I just uh, I really I think I think the point that you made just now is is really important Um, by one figure the number of people who were disabled in Iraq after you know after the initial invasion and the shock and awe campaign um went up 30 times relative to decades earlier relative to the 70s something like 10% of the population was estimated to be disabled um and if that's not a main feature of disability studies advocacy in the United States. It's probably because of <laughs> who gets to do disability studies advocacy um but like I, virtually
1: but, unheard of actually right lot, most arenas yeah
0: right but 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 I think it's equally important to sit that point next to the point that we were talking about earlier in terms of avoiding the kind of overly moralizing way of thinking about elite capture and identity politics. It's not yeah. as though, yeah. You know, if the disability studies conferences start having more panels about Iraq, it's not like those people are about to get reparations. Right. Yeah. Like that's not what's standing in between Halliburton and accountability. Um, So, you know, there's a way of criticizing identity politics that that kind of pretends at this deep realist analysis that if we just all used the word class more that, (laughs) you know, the. the social structures around us that explain why we don't use the word class would somehow, you know, be defeated by this magic word. And I just, you know, I fundamentally reject that. Um, And so, you know, one of the things that I appreciated and learned a lot from in E. Franklin Frazier's work to get around to your question um, is that, you know, while E. Franklin Frazier wrote the book, Black bourgeoisie, which um, criticizes um, the Black bourgeoisie, um, the Black elite for its kind of participation in the oppression of um, the Black non-elite, the Black working class, as well as its kind of refusal to, or perhaps inability to take a more progressive, socially helpful position. Um that's that's a lot like Franz Fanon's critique of African elites. Um I think both of them were critical of the black elite while not pretending as though this is just this just boils down to their moral errors. Right? One of the things Frank E. Franklin Fraser stressed is: well, one reason why the black elite isn't playing a, you know, vanguard role in the total destruction of racial domination in the United States is because they can't. Right. right? If you took up all of the monetary resources that the Black elite controls as a whole, you would be talking about less resources. This was true at the time he was writing it. You'd be talking about less money than your average city level white bank owned. socially precarious they are financially you know orders of magnitude away from being a serious threat to the white establishment and whatever moral condemnation we have about the black elite we have to sit that next to a sober understanding of the practical situation that they're in and that's something that i really took to heart in writing this book
1: yeah i really uh i I really appreciated that because I think it, it really hammers home a point, um, that Phil actually often makes on the, on the show, which is like, it's not conspiracy. It's hegemony that these are, um, sort of, it's, it's not simply enough for our political praxis to end at sort of declaring these critiques of like, what is good behavior politically and what is bad behavior. It's, and I think this is something that comes through a lot, um, in in people's frustrations with COVID, right? Where you you see a lot of what should be system critique ascribed to individual behavior. And I think that that in and of itself, you know, as you're saying that that in a way of redirecting energies is itself also this kind of process of where elite capture is made highly visible. Because if we think about, for example, like the disability rights movement or, the kind of ideas about like you know pursuing liberation through ethical capitalism <laughs> or eco capitalism um you know all these these frameworks they also take up so much tremendous time and energy that could be um I guess in your words used to build other rooms, not simply try to like take up space in in the existing ones
0: yeah, and that's what I hope you know I think that's the direction I hope more of the conversation starts to go in if we actually Build the kinds of organizations, build the kind of practical situation that would, you know, clear some of the distance in between the relative political power that the Halliburtons of the world have and the relative political power that, you know, your average working class people have. I think we would see better kinds of politics circulate as a result, including on the sphere of identity politics. I like if the only way you can talk about race is to, you know, be part of the J.P. Morgan, Ida B. Wells task force or whatever, <laughs> um, then, you know, that's what you're going to get. But if there's a thriving ecology of unions and, you know, workers unions and tenants unions and, you know, lefty archives and. Mm-hmm all these other kinds of organizations that build actual practical spaces and resources for circulating other ways of thinking about the world that are more radical and more politically serious, um, then that's what we're going to get.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is sort of brings me back to this metaphor that, uh, or this, this sort of story that you use to ground, I think, a lot of the analysis. And, and this is where I felt like the, uh, i I wanted to take a, a philosophy class taught by you, but you use this um, uh, the story of the Emperor having no clothes, right? And you use it as a way sort of of exploring what the root of the problem is that you're that you're tackling, right? Because I think a lot of what you're sort of talking about is the way that this sort of uh, system kind of imparts its values onto kind of everybody uh, within it. And so rather than, actually building uh, organizations that are capable of confronting uh, power, we end up just sort of engaging in other forms of capital accumulation that end up sort of diverting us. Like there are any number of sort of diversionary activities that can exhaust your resources and time. So can you talk a little bit about what that sort of metaphor of uh, or the story of, of an emperor, the emperor having no clothes, kind of what that how you sort of use that uh, in the book? Yeah, so I'm using the,
0: Emperor, the emperor's new clothes fable as a way to answer this perspective that, you know, whatever the problems and pathologies with identity politics that we're seeing in terms of how people use it and how people behave in terms of referencing identity politics, I'm trying to answer this perspective that just equates those to, you know, deep-seated ideological problems with the ideas of identity politics. I'm trying to say why I don't think that's the right take on why we're seeing these problems associated with identity politics. And so, you know, the story, just in case anybody isn't familiar with the story, um, the short version of the story is there is, uh, you know, there's an emperor, his assistants bring him an empty hanger and says that it, and, and tell the emperor that it has a special robe that is invisible to everyone except the smart and worthy. And so the emperor not wanting to be seen as not smart and not worthy, you know, pretends to put on the, this non-existent garment and walks around town. And for a while, everyone plays along until um, a small child makes fun of the emperor. And then the kind of spell is broken and everyone laughs. That's more or less the story. And what I say about this story is, you know, essentially, there's a reason why it's the emperor having no clothes, right? It was just Scott from down the block <laughs> saying <laughs> saying he has a special robe that only smart people can see or something. Probably immediately, everyone would just point and laugh and call him an asshole.
1: He'd be committed.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. That. I mean, more seriously, that's that's what would happen, right? That's what you my know.
1: book's about, yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and you know, and what that points to is something we could explain a couple ways. We could explain it at the level of beliefs, and we could say the difference power makes is that you know people come up with these elaborate theories, or people latch on to whatever justification that powerful people offer them and so their behavior of complimenting the emperor on these non-existent clothes is an indication that they've really and truly bought into the mystique of the empire or something like that. And for some people that will be true, but we don't need anything nearly that elaborate to explain why somebody minding their own business you know, baking bread for the day, might see the emperor claiming to wear clothes and play along, right? We play along for all sorts of reasons. Lots of those reasons have to do with trying to get through the day, trying to avoid being thrown in jail and tortured and executed, you know, the kinds of things that might happen to somebody who embarrasses an emperor, right? And, and those other explanations don't involve buying into this fake story. All right. So all of that is just to say, there are reasons why people do things beyond what beliefs are at play or pretend to be at play. And if that's true, then I think we can look at the proliferation of these bad ways of using identity politics and give ourselves the same range of flexibility for explaining them. Some people probably are true believers in this way of thinking about identity politics Mm -hmm. some people are just very trusting and you know expect that other people have the answers some people are just lying you know um there's all those kinds of things um but if you're asking why it would pay off to play along then you need to think about just what the social structure is in the mm-hmm. same way what, right. that when you're asking why it would pay off to play play along with the emperor, you should probably think about the fact that he's an emperor, he's yeah. an empire.
2: Right, and if you miss that, you're going to end up making a bunch of ascriptions to individuals about their beliefs that that really don't actually help explain why this ridiculous situation uh, persists, right? And And I think and and maybe this is something you can get to, you're also not going to be explaining why the the end of the story where the sort of child just sort of points out that the king is naked and the the spell is broken or the emperor is naked and the spell is broken, um, why that actually is a way of resolving the story, right? I mean, can you talk a little bit about what the... Because I think implicit in the, the narrative is not only an explanation of the fact that it's a social structure that produces these kinds of practices or, or uh, ascriptions that people make in the world. Uh, but also like implicit in the story is a lesson about exactly what it takes to change things.
0: Yeah. The, the kid in the story, you know, the kid in the story is my hero in all sorts of ways because, you know, in fact, even though this kid is a kid, you know, I, even children can be harmed by, regimes, so on and so forth we all we all understand that children aren't magically spared um, even from violence by people who are um, sufficiently violent um, but kids no less and are less invested in the norms that constrain everybody else right and so we could read the story a few ways maybe the kid just doesn't know that you're supposed to defer to the emperor whatever you know, whatever silly thing he's saying today, maybe the kid knows, but just isn't appropriately afraid of the vengeance of the emperor. Um, we could tell the why story in lots of ways, but the what story is just that the rule doesn't work on the kid, right? the The rule that everybody else is following, which is defer to the emperor, just doesn't work. The kid just refuses it. And a thing that I say elsewhere in the book um, and that I spend, you know, a little bit of time trying to really make a meal out of is by pointing out that social structures have all of these sorts of rules mm-hmm. that don't really have enforcement mechanisms, right? The, you know, there there wasn't a law passed that morning that says everyone must compliment the emperor on this invisible clothing, (laughs) right? People just kind of think back. Other times people have defied the emperor and think back to how well it went for them and just kind of make a judgment call about what they can expect to happen this time. But there isn't actually, you know, a fleet of knights going around making sure everyone says nice things. Um, the th- reason why human beings are so hard to control and the reason why unjust systems are so violent is because they're trying to get us to turn off this thing that we have, which is to just, you know, look at what we're going to do and decide for ourselves. You know, <laughs> this capacity to be free that we have. It's capacity to make our own kinds of choices creatively, you know, for reasons that the system doesn't countenance or doesn't recommend, et cetera, et cetera. And so much of adult life is about pretending we're not capable of doing this to get along with others. Um, and lots of times we kind of need to set aside our personal beefs with the rules of the day or with what's going on in a particular encounter but sometimes we really shouldn't um and it's just helpful to remember that we never have to often can just refuse in ways that are obvious or ways that are subtle
1: yeah i mean and i think that's one of the things that when i was in the hospital i kept thinking about so acutely was just how much of my uh for example like i mentioned you know i was like reading this book in between like trying to advocate for myself it's covid so i'm in the hospital and i can't have anyone with me so it's obviously like a, a sort of difficult situation um for someone like me who can't see it's like hard to get someone's attention and and do this kind of stuff and i i realized that like there were norms about the way that the spaces were designed in in the in the hospital i was used to right which was sort of influenced by the ideology of that hospital's priorities, which um, is maximizing space that were very different in the hospital that I was in when I was reading your book, which was more oriented around the fact that they were really trying to keep patients away from each other and, and from seeing each other, which obviously made it much more difficult for me to be able to get someone's attention. And I kept thinking about all these sort of You know, you you, you talk about like these these sort of mechanisms, mechanisms of enforcement, right, that there are these soft mechanisms, there are hard mechanisms, there's straight up repression and and these kinds of like ideas about behavior and communication and, and norms and enforcement has been really central to a lot of the debate around the pandemic And I think a lot of the debate about the idea of like sort of needing to meet people where they're at with policy and needing to, you know, sort of do these uh, interventions around consumerist uh, frameworks like tools or pharmaceutical only interventions and avoiding things, um, you know, that would have this kind of material impact, for example, for the kinds of people who are actually experiencing the the brunt of the downward extractive pressure and suffering of covid which is people who really need protection at work who need the kind of um, frameworks of communication to give them a kind of leverage or um, a a framework for enforcing the fact that they need they want to take behavior to protect themselves and instead we have this like completely different approach that I think, Plays along with these ideas that we tell ourselves about the reasons why good things can't happen. One of which is to, you know, blame people as these individual moral actors for sort of failing to be, I don't know, like some sort of superior being that can make these interventions. And and it's not it's not a matter, I think, of of finding. Um, you know, moments where individuals can become like heroes. As you're saying, it's about finding ways to reassert um, new kinds of common ground and commonality and and common knowledge. And I, I appreciate how one of the things you also really focus on over and over throughout your book is the role that political education plays in this. And it was one of the things that I just, you know, my interactions with the doctors, with the nurses, with the staff, everything was so incredibly different just from the unspoken rules of being in a different hospital system. And and it's, I think, those moments where you really see, like, ultimately, these are two different systems that are designed to do the same thing, which is to deny people care, to maximize profit extraction, and to manage volatile populations, some of whom are not wanted in the hospital, and they're trying to get out while other p- populations are more desirable. And in a lot of ways, it's a kind of... Um, it's a really instructive example, I think, to be thinking through these affinities, these similarities, and how all these systems, they can look totally different. But at the end of the day, they're they're all oriented ultimately towards either reinforcing reinforcing racial capitalism or these more colonial structures of organizing society that, yes, we do ultimately like ourselves reproduce, but that exist in these levels that, or much harder to name. And so I appreciate you sort of trying to aggressively give language and force people to look at that, um, that sort of level of it and not the way that we're typically used to thinking about these things, which is more about like, you know, individual actors having drive and a kind of grand narrative of history and change through this kind of idea of like, you know, heroes and important figures.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot. I really, I really hope that does. Get across, and I'm just struck by, you know, how how far ahead of us um, those of us who are fighting against racial capitalism, how far ahead of us, you know, capital is on this question, right? It's a it's a foregone conclusion from the point of view of the people who are literally invested in understanding manipulating and shaping human behavior that the conditions for doing so are ecological right so much you know billions of dollars have been put into various forms of research by you know military and intelligence operations to figure out what makes us tick and how to get us to tick differently Right. The Disney's and Ubers and Lyfts and Amazon's of the world explicitly create game environments to control the decisions of their workforce, right um, creating point systems or star rating systems to, you know, get the desired patterns of behavior out of people whose backstories and beliefs and lives are, Infinitely complex and who those corporations and and which those corporations have no interest in really (laughs) deeply understanding. Right. Um, They know they understand that structures of incentives and the social system that gives people or denies people other alternatives to particular working situations, all those kind of ecological factors decide whether or not that Uber driver is going to keep driving at 2 a.m. after they've been driving for hours. Those are the things you know that shape what people do. And it's only when they're trying to decide who to blame for things that this language of responsibility and smart and moral and responsible individual choices becomes, you know, the kind of central organizing features of the conversation.
1: Absolutely. And I appreciate this, this framework that you assert towards the end of the book, which is towards something you call a constructive approach to politics. Do you think maybe as a final point, you could walk the listeners through what this constructed Um, view is and essentially I guess I would I, I would be really interested to hear you talk about how this constructive approach is also something that you say is more difficult because I think that's a that's a very key component towards like understanding the praxis of how we come to do the work together, to work towards these goals, I think um i I think I was reading something uh, that you wrote about your other book, which I haven't read yet, but is in my pile, and I'm looking forward to it, where you talked about, you know, the world being this thing that we're all constructing together, obviously in real time through networks of systems and relationships and interdependence, and that there's really, Nothing that we can do in one country that's ever locked into this perspective of like the kind of bordered politics that we're used to thinking about things in terms of frameworks of feasibility. I mean, I think it's incredibly frustrating to be someone who works on health justice. Right. And to be forced to think through health justice, constrained to the politics of the United States, because no movement for health justice can stop at the borders of one country for even trying for the same goals, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that there are many people working towards health justice who have very different goals than we do here on Death Panel. And I I think this kind of constructive approach that you talk of in the last chapter of your book is, is a really interesting way of discussing and framing that kind of approach to political praxis.
0: The constructive approach, as I see it, is just the kind of Natural conclusion, at least starting from the kind of politics that we have, I think, just a natural conclusion of the descriptive point that we were just talking about, right? So if the way that we're controlled, if the thing that explains our behavior or one of the primary explanations of our behavior is our ecology, our choice environment, right? If the reason why I don't make fun of the emperor is the empire, um, it's the world that I live in, then that's the thing that we need to change um, if we want to act differently. So it's not, you know, deciding, coming to all the correct takes and then, you know, letting the actions flow from there. Um, But it's making parts of the world over again, making pockets of the world different so that better political action becomes easier to do.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. If you want people to walk in an orderly way across the street, you can yell at them about the importance of road safety, or you can paint a sidewalk and paint a crosswalk rather. Um, This is the paint a crosswalk view of politics. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the, you know, one example, you know, a tried and true example of left politics is the union. Mm-hmm. Right. What is it that a union does? Does it convince people of the merits of the idea that it is good to take an interest in the working conditions and compensation of your coworkers? Maybe. In fact, probably, but you know what else it does? It just makes it true that your working conditions and compensation and benefits and all that are connected to your coworkers. It makes a, an organization, it makes a little pocket of activity where you and the person who works next to you really do have joined linked interests, And so it makes it easier to do things together, like say fighting together for better working conditions. That is a construction project that changes the way that you might fight for better working conditions, better pay, all of that. It doesn't overnight make capitalism not exist, but it gives us a better foothold to fight aspects of it. And I think that is a Way of thinking that generalizes. Not everything will be a workers' union. Some of the things that are worth building might be debtors' unions, might be tenants' unions, might be entirely different kinds of organizations. It might even be gardening projects. They might be projects to oppose new fossil fuel architecture or pollutants going into the river, you know, whatever it might be. Um, all I'm proposing is thinking of it in terms of building a thing, adding something to the ecology or removing something from the ecology that changes what is practically possible.
2: And I, I sort of I, I wonder if you could just provide a little bit of contrast, because I think that you're you're entirely right that ultimately what makes uh, a union powerful is the fact that you. Uh, not not the fact that it it necessarily changes beliefs, although it can, uh, and there's evidence that it does, but that it binds people together around these shared uh, material uh, interests. And I, I wonder if you could just give a, a brief account of what it is about the way that uh, present uh, kind of political organizations how how they inhibit that kind of constructive politics, because I think that is th- those are the kind of organizations that uh, you know with. Union density in the United States around oh, what ten percent, something like that, uh, or perhaps even lower at this point. Those are the kind of organizations that, to the extent that people are in, involved in politics, they're involved in, in in organizations that often don't have that kind of uh, constructive logic. And I was wondering if just providing some clarity on on what it is uh, about those organizations that prevents uh, more constructive politics from from forming.
0: Yeah, I you know I'm I'm kind of reluctant to say that um, other forms of organizations prevent that kind of constructive politics from forming um, with with maybe the exception of kind of anti-solidaristic organizations, right? If the, if the point of your organization, or maybe not the express point, but if the actual effect of your organization is to make people less willing or less able to, build power with other people, um, then that would be a kind of anti-constructivist view. And there are, you know, there are actual examples of such kind of organizations, your um, leftist organizations that are kind of expressly sectarian, um, identity-based organizations that are anti-coalitional and that aren't built around even Building power. Um, even some nonprofit organizations, um, if they're run in a way that is designed to maintain the power of the board and funders rather than in the long run erode that power, that's arguably a lot of them, if not all of them.
2: Yeah, that um, sounds, so, good so say, so that sounds, sounds quite familiar. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so 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 it's not as though there aren't examples. I just don't think you know I, I don't think there are many organizations that are inherently
2: yeah, well,
0: an example of anti-coalitional, because I think organization, in and of itself is kind of de facto constructive. It is getting people together to do a thing together, um and that creates a kind of power now. Whether we seize the opportunities to create even more power starting from there or not depends on what our commitments are and how the organization works.
2: Yeah, and that's sort of what I was trying to get at, I think, was was in mm. a way, I think I, I've certainly been uh, involved with organizations um, over the years, uh, some of which, uh, you know, not necessarily, um, you know, anti-solidaristic, but, um, you know, there are... There were moments where it felt incredibly diversionary from what the actual kind of needs, the the putative needs that the organization was uh, constructed to address, um, f- felt distant, uh, right from the from the action of the group. And I I think the I think I, I, your your point makes sense, which is that it's it's sort of illusory to think of uh, organizations as being in, incapable um, of uh, of a constructive. Uh, politics, but certainly, like it, there's a potential that has to be um, actualized. And I think that the great thing about the the last uh, you know two chapters of the book is you do sort of talk a little bit about what it what those other kinds of organizational examples kind of look like and, and what holds them together.
0: Yeah, there there definitely are organizations that function in this way. Um, but one of the things I've been trying to sort out my thinking on in terms of this sort of movement ecology way of framing things is, you know, is the problem just that there need to be more or different organizations alongside the existing ones, right? So it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world if an organization is focused on a narrow set of priorities, you know, let's say, you know, they're just focused on, Yeah, I mean, say there's a particular insect species that organization is is focused on, um, and it's narrowly focused on that, but there is a broader kind of biodiversity problem beyond that one species, right? Um, It's not necessarily a problem if that organization has a narrow focus, if there are other organizations that are focusing more broadly, right? If there's an ecology that as a whole gets at the whole biodiversity problem. Um, So all I'm pushing back against, you know, very slightly is just, I think a lot of times we're kind of tempted to view specific organizations as a problem, specific organizations that do exist as a problem, when the real problem from this ecological point of view might be the organizations that don't exist. And maybe we'd be better served making those rather than yelling at the few people who are doing anything to care about more than they currently care about.
2: Yeah. Well said.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think it, it sort of speaks to this point that I really appreciate you, you making also in the final chapter about kind of trauma politics and how shared experience doesn't, automatically, uh, you know, give someone the kind of political lens necessary to speak on behalf of a whole group, but that that's also kind of one of these functions of like elite capture within systems is, is to basically, you know, be forcing things to speak on behalf of the whole when the point is to actually orient many modes of working and thinking towards, you know, I think specific goals of of liberation not just like continued status quo domination colonial extraction and maintaining these you know systems that are much bigger than any one country and have this global scale but that essentially often are perpetuated by this focus on these kind of like individual moments as if these these heroes and bad actors are all we need in order to just you know snap our fingers and and have the world that we want absolutely was there anything that we didn't get a chance to get to today that you wanted to talk about?
0: No, I think we covered it.
1: Thank you great. so much. This, this has is been awesome.
0: awesome. Yeah. Yeah, thanks a lot. This is a great conversation.
1: Really, so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I so appreciate it. Um, again, Olufemi's book is called Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else. It was published this May from Haymarket Books. If you want to follow Femi, you can follow him on Twitter at OluFemiOtaiWo. And patrons, we will catch you later in the week in the patron feed. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for All Now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.